Job, a boy of Galilee, chapter two. Early in the morning after the Sabbath, Job was in his accustomed place in the market, waiting for his friend Phinehas. His uncle had given a gruff assent when he timidly asked his approval of the plan. The good Amos was much pleased when he heard of the arrangement. Thou hast been a faithful student, he said kindly. Thou knowest already more of the law than many of thy elders. Now it will do thee good to learn the handicraft of Phinehas. Remember, my son, the balm was created by God before the wound. Work that is as old as Eden has been given us that we might forget the afflictions of this life that fleeth like a shadow. May the God of thy fathers give thee peace with the old man's benediction, repeating itself like a solemn refrain in all his thoughts. Joel stood smoothing the pigeon in his arms until Phineas had made his daily purchases. Then they walked on together in the cool of the morning to the little white house under the fig trees. Phineas was surprised at his pupil's progress. To be sure, the weak arms could lift little, the slender hands could attempt no large tasks, but the painstaking care he bestowed on everything he attempted resulted in beautifully finished work. If there was an extra smooth polish to be put on some wood, or a delicate piece of joining to do, Joel's deft fingers seemed exactly suited to the task. Before the winter was over, he had made many pretty little articles of furniture for Abigail's use. "'May I have these pieces of fine wood to use as I please?' he asked of Phineas one day. "'All but that largest strip,' he answered. "'What are you going to make?' Something for Ruth's birthday. She will be three years old in a few weeks, Jessie says, and I want to make something for her to play with. What are you going to make her? inquired Jessie from under the workbench. Let me see, too. Oh, I didn't know you were anywhere near, answered Joel with a start of alarm. Tell me, begged Jessie. Well, if you will promise to keep her out of the way while I am finishing it and never say a word about it. I'll promise, said the child solemnly. He had to clap his hand over his mouth a great many times in the next few weeks to keep his secret from telling itself, and he watched admiringly while Joel carved and polished and cut. One of the neighbors had come in to talk with Abigail the day he finished it, and as the children were down on the beach playing in the sand, he took it in the house to show it to the women. It was a little table set with tweed dishes that he had carved out of wood, plates and cups and platters, all complete. The visitor held up her hands with an exclamation of delight. After taking up each little highly polished dish to inherit separately, she said, I know where you might get a great deal of money for such work. There is a rich Roman living near the garrison who spends money like a lord. No price is too great for him to pay for anything that pleases his fancy. Why don't you take some up there and offer them for sale? I believe I will, said Joel, after considering the matter. I'll go just as soon as I can get them made. Ruth spread many a little feast under the fig trees, but after the first birthday banquet, Jessie was her only guest. Joel was too busy making more dishes and another little table to partake of them. 
The whole family were interested in his success. The day he went up to the great house near the garrison to offer them for sale, they waited anxiously for his return. He sold them! He sold them! cried Jesse, hopping from one foot to the other, as he saw Joel coming down the street empty-handed. Joel was hobbling along as fast as he could, his face beaming. See how much money! he cried, as he opened his hand to show a shining coin, stamped with the head of Caesar, and I have an order for two more. I'll soon have a fortune! The children liked the dishes so much, although they had the most beautiful toys I ever saw. They had images they called dolls. Some of them had white kid faces and were dressed as richly as queens. I wish Ruth had one. The law forbids, exclaimed Phineas. Have you forgotten that it is written, Thou shalt not make any likeness of anything in the heavens above, or the earth beneath, or the waters under the earth? She is happy with what she has, and needs no strange idols of the heathen to play with. Joel made no answer, but he thought of the merry group of Roman children seated around the little table he had made, and wished again that Ruth had one of those gorgeously dressed stars. Skill and strength were not all he gained by his winter's work, for some of the broad charity that made continual summer in the heart of Phineas crept into his own embittered nature. He grew less suspicious of those around him, and smiles came more easily now to his face than scowls. For the strong ambition of his life never left him for an instant. To all the rest of the world he might be a friend. To Rehum he could only be the most unforgiving of enemies. The thought that had given him most pleasure when the wealthy Roman had tossed him his first earnings was not that his work could bring him money, but that the money could open the way for his revenge. That thought, like a dark undercurrent, gained depth and force as the days went by. As he saw how much he could do in spite of his lameness, he thought of how much more he might have accomplished if he had been like other boys. It was a constant spur to his desire for revenge. One day Phineas laid aside his tools much earlier than usual, and without any explanation to his wandering pupil, went up into the town. When he returned, he nodded to his wife, who sat in the doorway spinning, and who had looked up inquiringly as he approached. "'Yes, it's all arranged,' he said to her. Then he turned to Joel to ask, "'Did you ever ride on a camel, my boy?' "'No,' answered the boy, in surprise, wondering what was coming next. "'Well, I have a day's journey to make up to the hills in Upper Galilee.' A camel caravan passes near the place where my business calls me, as it goes to Damascus. I seek to accompany it for protection. I go on foot, but I have made arrangements for you to ride one of the camels. Oh, am I really to go too? gasped Joel in delighted astonishment. Oh, Phineas, how did you ever think of asking me? You have not seemed entirely well of late, was the answer. I thought the change would do you good. I said nothing about it before, for I had no opportunity to see your uncle until this afternoon, and I did not want to disappoint you, in case he refused his permission. And he really says I may go, demanded the boy, eagerly. Yes, the caravan moves in the morning, and we will go with it. There was little more work done that day. Joe was so full of anticipations of his journey that he scarcely knew what he was doing. 
Phineas was busy with preparations for the comfort of his little family during his absence, and went into town again. On his return he seemed strangely excited. Abigail, seeing something amiss, watched him carefully, but asked no questions. He took a piece of timber that he had been laid away for some spe special purpose, and began sawing it into small bits. Phineas ventured Joe respectfully, is that not the wood you charged me to save so carefully? Phineas gave a start as he saw what he had done, and threw down his saw. Truly, he said, smiling, I am beside myself with the news I have heard. I just now walked ten cupids past my own house, unknowing where I was. So deeply was I thinking upon it. Abigail, he asked, do you remember my friend in Nazareth, whom I so often speak of, the son of Joseph the carpenter? Last week he was bidden to a marriage in Cana. It happened before the feasting was over. The supply of wine was exhausted, and the mortified host knew not what to do. Six great jars of stone had been placed in the room to supply the guests with water for washing. He changed that water into wine. I cannot believe it, answered Ab Abigail simply. But Ezra ben Jared told me so. He was there and drank of the wine, insisted Phineas. He could not have done it, said Abigail, unless he were helped, or unless he were a prophet. To this Phineas made no answer. His quiet thoughts were shaken out of their usual routine as valiantly as if by an earthquake. Joe thought more of the journey than he did of the miracle. It seemed to the impatient boy that the next day never would dawn. Many times in the night he wakened to hear the distant crowing of cocks. At last, by straining his eyes, he could distinguish the green leaves of the vine on the lattice from the blue of the half-opened blossoms. By that token, he knew it was near enough the morning for him to commence saying his first prayers. Dressing noiselessly, so as not to disturb the sleeping family, he slipped out of the house and down to the well outside the city gate. Here he washed and then ate the little lunch he had wrapped up the night before, a meager little breakfast, only a hard-boiled egg, a bit of fish, and some black bread. But the early hour and his excitement took away his appetite for even that little. Soon all was confusion around the well, as the noisy drivers gathered to water their camels and make their preparations for the start. Joel shrunk away timidly to the edge of the crowd, fearful that his friend Phineas had overslept himself. In a few minutes he saw him coming with a staff in one hand and a small bundle swinging from the other. Joe had one breathless moment of suspense as he was helped on to the back of the kneeling camel, one desperate clutch at the saddle as the huge animal plunged about and rose to his feet. Then he looked down at Phineas and smiled blissfully. Oh, the delight of that slow, easy motion, the joy of being carried along without pain or effort. Who could realize how much it meant to the little fellow whose halting steps had so long, long been taken in weariness and suffering, swinging along in the cool air so far above the foot passengers it seemed to him that he looked down upon a new earth. Blackbirds flew along the road, startled by their passing. High overhead a lark had not yet finished her morning song. 
lambs bleated in the pastures, and the lowing of herds sounded on every hillside. Not a sigh or sound escaped the boy, and all the morning he rode on without speaking. Not a care in his heart, not a cloud on his horizon. At noon they stopped in a little grove of olive trees, where a cool spring gurgled out from the rocks. Phineas spread out their lunch at a little distance from the others, and they ate it quickly, with appetites sharpened by the morning's travel. Afterwards, Joel stretched himself out on the ground to rest, and was asleep almost as soon as his eyelids could shut out the noontime glare of the sun from his tired eyes. When he awoke nearly an hour afterward, he heard voices near him, in earnest conversation, raising himself on his elbow. He saw Phineas at a little distance, talking to an old man who had ridden one of the foremost camels. They must have been talking of the miracle, for the old man, as he stroked his long white beard, was saying, But men are more wont to be astonished at the sun's eclipse than at his daily rising. Look, my friend, he pointed to a wild grapevine clinging to a tree nearby. Do you see those bunches of half-grown grapes? There is a constant miracle. Day by day, the water of the dew and rain is bringing change into the wine of the grape. Soil and sunshine are turning into fragrant juices. Yet you feel no astonishment. No, the son of Phineas, for it is by the hand of God it is done. Who may not this be also, said the old man, even this miracle at the marriage feast in Cana? Phineas started violently. What? he cried. Do you think it possible that this friend of mine is the one to be sent of God? Is not this the accepted time for the coming of Israel's Messiah? answered the old man solemnly. Is it not meet that he should herald his presence by miracles and signs and wonders? Joel lay down again to think over what he had just heard. Like every other Israelite in the whole world, he knew that a deliverer had been promised his people. Time and again he had read the prophecies that foretold the coming of a king through the royal line of David. Time and again he had pictured to himself the mighty battles to take place between his downtrodden race and the haughty hordes of Caesar. Sometimes, somewhere, a universal dominion awaited them. He firmly believed that the day was near at hand, but not even in his wildest dreams had he ever dared to hope that it might come in his own lifetime. He raised himself on his elbow again, for the old man was speaking. About thirty years ago, he said slowly, I went up to Jerusalem to be registered for taxation, for the emperor's decree had gone forth and no one could escape. Enrollment. You are too young to remember the taking of that census, my friend, but you have doubtless heard of it. Yes, the son of Phinehas, respectfully. I was standing just outside the Joppa Gate, bargaining with a man for a cage of goldfinches he had for sale, which I wish someone speaking to us. Looking up, we saw several strange men on camels who were inquiring their way. They were richly dressed, the trappings and silver bells on their camels as well as their own terror spoke of wealth. Their faces showed that they were wise and learned men from far countries. We greeted them respectfully, but could not speak for astonishment when we heard their question, Where is he that is born King of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and have come to worship him. The bird-seller looked at me, and I looked at him in open-mouthed wonder. 
The men rode on before we could find words wherewith to answer them. All sorts of rumors were afloat, and everywhere we went next day. Throughout Jerusalem, lots of people stood talking of the mysterious men and their strange question. Even the king was interested and sought audience with them. Could anyone answer them? asked Phineas. Nay, but it was then impressed on me so surely that the Christ was born that I have asked myself all these thirty years, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For I too would fain follow on to find and worship him. As soon as I return from Damascus, I shall go at once to Cana and search for this miracle worker. The old man's earnest words made a wonderful impression on Joel. All the afternoon, as they rose higher among the hills, the thought took stronger possession of him. He might yet live, helpless little cripple as he was, to see the dawn of Israel's deliverance, and a son of David once more on its throne. Thank you for listening to another episode of Acresoft Story Classic.